Welcome to We Are Neighbors podcast, hosted by myself, Jolie Angel Robinson, President and CEO of Housing Forward, along with my amazing colleague, Rebecca Hickam, Director of Coordinated Access for Housing Forward. We Are Neighbors is a space for us to center the experiences and voice of those who have lived experience and talk to experts on the entire topic of homelessness, the who, how, what, and really dig into policies and practices that will help us end homelessness. We want to do that. Absolutely. We'll have a new episode each month. So join us as we explore the issue of homelessness. We look forward to continuing to raise awareness, support advocacy, and move us all to action that we can take together to make the experience of homelessness rare, brief, and non-recurring. Every neighbor deserves to have a safe, stable place to call home. We are all neighbors joining in the work to secure that basic human right. Hello, all, and welcome to the We Are Neighbors podcast. Today, we have an exciting, super, super exciting episode featuring one of our most amazing service providers and all Neighbors Coalition members, Family Gateway. We are talking to the amazing, illustrious Ellen Magnus today. The mission of Family Gateway is to provide stability and life-changing supportive services to children and families affected by homelessness. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention my awesome co-podcast host, is that the official term? Rebecca Hickam. Go ahead, Rebecca. We'll go with that. Thanks, Jolie. Uh, as you mentioned, our special guest today is Ellen Magnus. Ellen is the president and CEO of Family Gateway, where she's been since 2016. So Family Gateway is a leader in Dallas and Collin counties in providing shelter and housing services to families with children. They also happen to serve as the main access point for families with children for our community's coordinated access system. In this episode, we're going to be talking about families experiencing homelessness, how Family Gateway provides support, and ways that you can get involved, which is always an exciting part of the conversation. So a big warm welcome to Ellen. Ellen, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure. Always good to spend time with you guys. We love that. So let's jump right on in. So we know that Family Gateway works tirelessly to address family homelessness in our community. Could you tell us more about Family Gateway and some of the specific ways that Family Gateway is addressing family homelessness? Absolutely. So we've been around since about 1986. So we've been around a long time. Uh, and our sort of model has evolved to try to keep up with the latest and best practices and research as we forge ahead and figure out how to help more families um, than ever before. So we started out as an agency that just had one location with a downtown shelter. And um, over the years, we have evolved to change our model from what was formerly a first come first serve model, which is you show up, you need help, you come in. And now we have shifted, we shifted probably, I've been here seven years, we probably shifted six years ago, five and a half, six years ago to an assessment-based entry. And that um, was after looking at what the rest of the country was doing and trying to figure out how do we move beyond an agency that serves about 400 families a year when we have all of these families coming to us. And our only response when we're full is to say, 
we're full, sorry, try somewhere else, right? It just wasn't effective. And so the need was so much greater than what we were providing. And, and we are unique in our community in that we will serve any type of family with children, whereas some agencies will want women and children only, no boys over a certain age. And so, you know, I kept asking our team, like, where are they going? <laughs> you know that we need we need to we need to figure out how to we can do more and do better and so we shifted to um start really talking to families instead of saying you know we're full sorry it, it you know the conversation shifted to you know where did you sleep last night and where's your family where were you raised where's your mom where's your grandma right so started really trying to understand what brought you to the car right? You're sleeping in your car. What happened? Where were you before the car? And really starting to probe into that. And that changed everything. And so from a, a time of serving 400 families a year, now we serve more than 1600 families a year, just by wow. asking some simple questions and trying to really understand the need. And I think a big shift happened when we started believing that just because someone is seeking shelter, shelter may not be the right intervention. And that sort of you know, opened our eyes and, and uh, really called us to be more creative and more um, problem solving in our approach. I, I mean, I jotted down a bunch of notes. Uh, you know, I really love and admire the work of Family Gateway and your leadership in this space, specifically, Ellen. But a couple of things like as I continue to hear the story of Family Gateway and all the work that you're doing, a couple of things that I jotted down. 1986, you all were founded and opened doors in 1986. Yeah, long time. Um, that's a long time. That's a, a long, long time, time of doing amazing work and serving our families. Um, you also mentioned you serve any type of family, right? Like we love to hear that. Um, I don't know that everyone who's listening or everyone who's aware or not aware of the system, not everyone serves all types of families to the point that you made. Um, and, and so it's important. And I, and I really admire the fact that, that you mentioned and you all actually do the thing of serving all families. And then 1,600 families a year going from 400. I mean, that's a story in and of itself. We talk a lot about diversion, so we'll probably unpack that a little later. But moving from 400 families a year to 1,600 families a year. Yeah, well, the, the beautiful serving. thing about that is... That 400 families a year was when we had about a $3.3 million budget. And so we quadrupled the number of families we serve, but our budget only went up a little over two times. Wow. So wow. about $7 million for that 1600. So it shows what a less expensive approach is in not just assuming that people who need who are coming for shelter need shelter. They can be helped in so many different ways that are much, much less expensive. And so yeah. it just allows us to stretch those resources uh, much, much further. I really love hearing about the work of Family Gateway and the commitment that you all have to families and addressing family family homelessness. Homelessness affects individuals and families in various ways, in very different ways. Families have slightly different needs. I'm sure you've seen that throughout your time than a single adult may have. If you were to help describe to others what some of those unique challenges families face, and you you kind of hit on, you know, when you all are doing those assessments, asking the different questions, but can you talk about the unique challenges families face when experiencing homelessness? 
Sure, sure. So, um, so first I will say that while we will serve any type of family, single mothers, single dads, married couples, unmarried couples, raising kids, grandmas, raising grandkids, we don't care. Um, the most common family we serve is a single African-American female with two or three kids. And so when we look deeper into that population and we, and we get to know them well <laughs> while they're with us, we learn about um, decades and decades of living in poverty, right? So generational poverty, we learn about um, having some sort of traumatic experience as a child. You know, my former role was at the Children's Advocacy Center where, where all we saw all day long are 11 and 12 year old girls who were molested. And so if you have that sort of experience early in your childhood and you don't get help for that and you don't heal from that, it sets your path on this trajectory that's really hard to unwind, right? And so, so let's take a little girl who has that sort of experience early on. She is much more likely to have a teenage pregnancy because she's going to be sexually active, trying to sort of resolve with her own, you know, subconscious, you know, attracting lots of people to her who may not have her best interest at heart. So she may have multiple partners as a teenager, unprotected sex. She may start having babies during high school. So now we're not finishing high school. So now we're a single mother growing up in poverty with a child with no dad in the picture, right? And then she may then attract other people into her life, still trying to solve this unmet um, need to resolve this trauma. And so she might she might get engaged in domestic violence as she gets older, but she's, she's sort of on this path of, if, without an intervention where she's going to continue sort of digging herself deeper and deeper and deeper and having more children and still not accelerating her education and believing in herself and all those things, right? And so that's a very common history for our, for our moms, to be honest. Um, we also see that um, as, with, as with everything in homelessness, she may be supported by her family up to a point up to a point. And then whatever resources she has been struggling to hold on to, maybe she's living with her mom or her aunt or a grandmother. At some point, there's going to be something that happens to create a conflict. Maybe they get angry with her because she's not looking for work or that she is not taking care of the kids, or maybe she starts getting into drugs or alcohol. You know, who knows? The stories are you name it, right? You have everything. But that loss of support system is what triggers the episode of homelessness, right? And so that mom and her kids may then go into a hotel and try to pay her own way in a hotel for a while. Then she may go to the car, right? And, um, you know, they try to hold onto the car and the cell phone as long as they can. And that's usually when they come to us is after like everything else has just sort of bottomed out and fallen apart. So that's a very common story. Other stories are um, a pair, a, either two parents or one parent, about 25% of our families have a child with some sort of disabling condition. So they might have severe autism, cerebral palsy, they might have seizure disorders. And so 
I will tell you that I've had very wealthy, intact, very well-supported families with a child with special needs who have said, we barely do it. We've got all the resource in the world. And so how is this young single mother who may be making an hourly wage and no sick pay benefits, leaving work to go pick up her kid three, you know, three times in a month, now I can't pay the rent. So that's another common story. Uh, Rebecca, I'm going to jump in just really quickly. I'm going to pull out the thread. I mean, you you reminded me of your your time at the Child Advocacy Center, right? And ACEs, we know those adverse Absolutely. childhood experiences. You mentioned a couple of them, the children and families in poverty, those traumatic experiences throughout someone's life, those disabling conditions often, and the loss of support system. I mean, talk about a snowball effect yeah. that impacts not just an individual, but an entire family unit. I mean, how... Um, I mean, how powerful is that even to think about how much of an impact those adverse childhood experiences do have on people? Exactly. I mean, the more you stack up, the worse it is. And, you know, it's not a doom and gloom story because what we know also from the research is that if there's an intervention, if there's something positive that family can hold on to, um, they can recover from this and they can figure out um, and, and I tell my case managers this all the time. You may be the one person who's ever been in this person's life who says, I believe in you. I know you can do this. You can get through this. I've been here. Right. And so um, so all of that to say they come in really traumatized, but there is hope. I love that. Um, yeah, I wanted to echo what Jolie said is this. We talk, we've talked a lot in past episodes about kind of the causes of homelessness, what leads to homelessness. And I love, I think that thinking about the compounding trauma of general, gen, generous, generational, gen, thank you, thank you, poverty yeah. can be can be a challenge to kind of some of our uh, preconceived notions of what we think leads to homelessness. I, I really uh, appreciate that take. And, and in particular that if we think about just 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 a little bit of hope, just a little bit of hope is what it can take to really make a difference. That's really helpful. Um, and we've okay. been around long enough to see it. So that's the that's the good news, right? Yes. So you can see um, you can see families as they come in and they've been sleeping in the car and there's no light in those kids eyes and they're just exhausted and desperate. And then you start seeing them get into some sort of stability. And, you know, if we bring them into shelter, um, you know, talking to people, gathering their resources, talking about what's next. And you see these kids sort of start to have a little glimmer in their eye again, right? They're way, way behind in school, always way behind in school. And there's multiple um, effects on kids um, that we could have our own episode about, honestly. Um, but but you but you do start seeing not with everybody, of course, not everybody's a success story and, you know, something to write home about. But you start seeing these people start piecing their lives back together. And it's not us doing it. It's them doing it. We're just giving them space and support and all those things that they could have done had they had that space and support outside. If our, if our podcast listeners could like see us nodding our heads like it is. I mean, it is so powerful. I was going to say that that's the the they're doing that unweaving of that 
uh, trauma in their life. That's the, that's, uh, that point is one of the uh, beautiful parts of what you said. Um, I'm going to switch uh, directions just a little bit. So at the beginning of the year, we hold our annual point in time count. Uh, the point in time count is an opportunity for us to take a census of our unhoused neighbors. And it's one of one of the many ways that we can and do evaluate the health of our homeless um, services system. This year's point in time count revealed that there was an increase in families experiencing homelessness between 2020-22 and 2023. Mm -hmm. uh, you've been at Family Gateway for six years. You've worked in the family system prior to that. So I'm sure you've seen the uh, family homeless population wane and wax. Mm -hmm. uh, would love to hear your thoughts a little bit on some of the main factors contributing to this increase. Sure. I think, um, number one, families were especially affected by the pandemic, right? We saw um, some really interesting things in our data as um, during the pandemic, money flowed into the hands of families. Our numbers went down. When extra unemployment benefits ended, our numbers went up. You can actually see the months where that happened. When the eviction ban started, when the eviction ban lifted, you can see it in the data with our numbers going up and down. I think um, we had a lot of evictions that were sort of pent up, pent up demand in all those JP courts during that pandemic that have been slowly, I think we're finally starting to normalize now, but we've seen more families, I think, destabilized um, post pandemic because they lost their childcare, they lost their jobs, right? And you can get a job if you have childcare, if the, across this country, childcare just was diminished significantly and has not rebounded um, to the extent that our families need it. And if you're just making a little bit of money and you're paying it all out in childcare, <laughs> it doesn't make sense for you to work, right? So we've seen a lot of sort of after effects of pandemic. I think the other thing is that, um, so, so all that to say there are more people flowing in, right? Our system focuses on you're in the system, let's get you out or let's keep you out altogether, right? And so we've had this, inflow of families like we've not seen before. And there's finite shelter space. And we made a commitment as um, the, the primary access point for our two countywide community that when shelter space is full, we're overflowing into very inexpensive hotels because we made a commitment that we don't want families sleeping outside. We don't want them in encampments. We don't want them in their cars. And so when you make that decision, and there's more people coming and you can't divert them. Of course, we're trying to divert as many as we can, but there's more coming, shelters are full, we're overflowing. Then naturally we're gonna count more people and more families in shelters during this during this period. You, I think you'll also note that there are very few families unsheltered during that point in time count, right? So we made that commitment, we're sticking to that commitment, um, which puts a big burden on our agency financially, to be honest, it's a big, it's a big um, commitment to do, uh, but I think those are the those are the the primary drivers. More people flowing in, um, shelters filling, us overflowing, and then the other thing I will say is we put this fantastic effort last year on moving more individuals out of homelessness with this big Dallas Real Time Rapid Rehousing project. So most of that 
infrastructure and funding went to individuals, which was the appropriate thing to do. It just meant that there wasn't as much for families. So we now have to, just as we did that big investment for individuals, we now have to start increasing our investment as a community to get more families into housing so that we can flow them through, right? Divert them when we can, move them into shelter when we have to, and get them out as quickly as possible. So that flow got disturbed. I want to you mentioned something specifically about how we saw numbers decrease when pandemic funding funding hit hit and one of the things that i think we can learn from that is that when we put the money directly in the family's hands that they uh they, they stabilize. it out <laughs> they know yeah they they know how yeah. to they know how to resolve their own housing crisis if given the resources yeah. i think that yeah and from your point that we it's a little bit of assistance and they can get back on their feet. And I think we can learn a lot from that as we implement yeah. these systems and create these programs. Yeah. Um, so we know that certain demographics such as minorities are more vulnerable to experiencing homelessness. We see that in our point in time count numbers locally, and we see that nationally as well. Um, are there any specific demographics or groups that are more susceptible to experiencing family homelessness? And um if you have any insights into why. Yeah, well, again, about um, seven, so it's actually probably a bigger number than with individuals, about 75% of our families are African-American, right? 75%. And so, you know, this is decades and decades and decades of policy decisions and um, community decisions that, uh, that really put the burden of poverty um, in the African-American community. And, you know, with so many young African-American females having teenage pregnancies and starting off like digging themselves in a hole, right? Um, you know, I think that it, they're just disproportionately affected. And then once you have a kid, then you've got a real problem on your hands, right? It's Now it's not just you anymore, right? So single females, African-American, young, um, that's our most, that's our most prevalent. We do see single, you know, single dads, married couples, unmarried couples. We see all of that, but the most prevalent is this particular population. Wow. I mean, the number is stark, right? 75% of families experiencing homelessness are black mm -hmm. slash African-American. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to the reality that you pointed to, there's historical, societal, systemic things that have happened along the way. Um, and so, I mean, just the number in and of itself is is really is really something else. Um, and not being we, able to finish your education is hmm. so critical. Right. And so if the support yeah. isn't there. So if you have a teenage pregnancy and the support isn't there to keep you in school, I mean, you just it's just set up for this life of struggle, real yeah. struggle until there's something to lift them up, which that's what we try to do. You're not even starting life at the starting line, right? You're not even starting adult life at the starting line. You're, no. you're kind of several, yeah, several way, way back. back. Yeah. 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 That's, that's super tough. Again, an applaud and nod to the work of family gateway. Cause that is, that's some immense uh, work that's happening and to the point that, you know, we're talking about demographic data, which is important for us, which is one thing we look at and center as a homeless response system. 
is to ensure that for our system, like we unfortunately don't have control over all of the other systems that have created inequities on the front end. You talk about that flow that create that flow into our system, but we really try to focus on once people um, arrive in our system seeking services and housing and assistance, that we are equitable, that we provide equitable service for everyone. So we do acknowledge, you know, the importance of racial equity in addressing homelessness in our system. And it's hard not to when you have 75% of families experiencing homelessness are Black or African-American. So how does Family Gateway, and and perhaps you can highlight for for us and in the entire system, how do we work to ensure that efforts to address family homelessness are inclusive and they're responsive to those diverse needs of that community? Well, here's what you will find that I continue to find, even though we've been doing it for a long time, really fascinating. And that is when we were on a first come first serve basis, you draw in the people who have the most wherewithal to show up, who know how to manage, maneuver, have actually more resources (laughs) than you do if you are digging in and doing that diversion conversation. So when we started diversion, we looked at, so I had a consultant call me from another state to say, I wanna prove that diversion is in in and of itself uh, an equity exercise. And so let's look at your data for the year before you did diversion. And then let's look at the data a year after you started diversion. We brought in more black African-Americans we brought in people who had less income. We brought in people who had larger families and we brought in more people who had disabling conditions. So all those better off people don't need to be taking shelter space, right? We can serve them less expensively, right? So just the act of doing that diversion conversation, where is your family? Where did you sleep before you were in the car? Is that, was that a safe place for you to go? Can we get your mom on the phone? Can, if we talk to her, do you think she'd take you back if we helped you find a job, right? All of that means those people are being served over here outside of shelter, which creates space to take in the people who have no mama, who whose home isn't a safe place, who who have much less resource to bring to bear, right? Just that in and of itself shifted dramatically those numbers, which we found really exciting. I mean, it, it you know, it's some, I think it's one thing people don't think about, right? Like mm-hmm. the act of finding assistance takes skills, takes resource, yeah, takes a level of you either have a phone, you have internet, you have transportation to get there. Like there's a bunch of resources that you have to utilize to even find resources. Right, it's absolutely right. It's absolutely right. Um, As you mentioned, Family Gateway does operate emergency shelters. They even think about overflow because as you said, you have made the commitment that we will not turn someone away. Um, And because of like the commitment that you have made, the operation of the emergency shelters, you are really focused on keeping families together, keeping them united. Can you, and going back to what you said, any family, right? Any type of family and understanding how important it is to keep families together. Why is that so critically important, Ellen? 
we've got to have a support structure. And so what you don't want to do when you're bringing a family into care is further dismantle their support structure. So if they were living with mom and it's a mom and her daughter and her two and the two grandkids or kids, if that's their support structure, you know, other agencies would say grandma can't stay here. Grandma can go to a shelter that serves individuals. So now you further split them and you're creating now a housing solution for an individual over here and a family over here where if you serve them together, you could leverage the fact that grandma can watch grandkids while mom goes to work, right? So you're missing all of this rich opportunity and you're missing the point that, um, if a family became homeless together and they want to stay together, that's their, that's their support structure. And you don't want to make it worse for them or harder for them. Yeah, that's such an important point. Um, I also just want to say, we talk a little bit about hashtagable moments. And when you said diversion is an, is an act of equity in and of itself, we gotta, we gotta keep, we gotta keep that. It was sort of an unintended consequence. Like it never even occurred to me until somebody said, what, what happened to your shelter population? And I knew, um, I didn't see the data, but I knew it had changed. As a matter of fact, within probably six months of, of starting that diversion practice and bringing in essentially worse off people into shelter, I got a knock on my door and a visit from the local principal who said, what is going on in this place? Because ah, these kids, yeah. kids are really traumatized. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> but she was used to seeing this mix of better off and worse off. We were only giving her worse off. So they had to shift to support a new population. So I knew it, but I didn't really see it until that consultant asked me to look at the data. Wow. Well, that's a really good segue into this next question. Um, in one of our previous conversations, we had Jeff Olivet, the Executive Director of the United States Interagency Council on Homelessness, um, chat with us. And you mentioned this earlier, but he said that an effective homeless response system has to have a strategy for decreasing the number of people entering the homeless response system. Um, I know, and you've mentioned it already, that Family Gateway employs strategies to do just that for families. What are some of those strategies or programs that have been successful in preventing homelessness or quickly resolving a housing crisis for, for, right. for vulnerable families? Right. Well, also during the pandemic, we had a lot of money for rental assistance. And so if honestly, the only thing standing between this family being you know, evicted out of their unit and coming into shelter is a couple grand. I throw money at that all day long. <laughs> right. And so it's a, it's much easier to help them stay and to just assign them a case manager for as long as they need and put, introduce them to community resources. That's a much better investment than letting them lose their unit, come into shelter we probably have to pay that eviction anyway before we can get them rehoused. And so we just need to keep those folks out who don't need that level of intervention. So it's the magic of matching the need with the intervention, right? So you don't want to overly intervene. And so 
Um, so, so one way to keep families from entering the system is to keep them stabilized where they are. A, a way to get them not to stay very long in the system or to, or to resolve very, very quickly would be things like I mentioned earlier, where's your mom, <laughs> right? Where's your family? You know, where are your grandparents? And so we often find that families have come here um, maybe moved here with a boyfriend, they split up, now she's on her own with her kids, she's sleeping in her car, and we find out she has a grandmother in California. Have you called your grandmother in California? No, I'm embarrassed. Would it be okay if we called your grandmother in California? <laughs> right? Let's tell her what's happening. And we'll put you on a bus and send you to her if she says, I will take them in and help them get on their feet. So that again, this is a family structure support system that's available to that family. That family doesn't need to come into shelter, right? We would much prefer to sync them back up with their family member, um, whether that's in-state, out-of-state. And if they're, if they're local, we might also provide some additional services like, do you need extra food in order to bring this family in with you? Let us give you some opportunities for that. She needs a job. Let us work with her on a job, right? And we'll also work with her on finding another unit if you'll just hold on to her, right? <laughs> so, so it's sort of moving, you know, families into that sort of situation. And then, you know, sometimes we find families who, let's say they have a voucher in their back pocket. They just don't know that they've struck out finding a unit. And so we would much prefer to put that family in a hotel for a couple of weeks and help them find a unit rather than bring them in to shelter and sort of have shelter as part of their history, right? Because yeah. kids always remember this stuff. Yeah. Right? And so if we can, if we can sort of scoot them out and help them over here, it just makes more room for people who really have no other choice but to come in. And so those are just a few of the things we might do. We less might, traumatic yeah. approach, right? Yeah. Like a less traumatic approach and experience for family. Really yeah. client focused and centered on yeah. the solution, right? That's powerful. Because they have they have resources. They may not be able to think of them because they're operating out of this back of their head that is, you know, fight or flight or freeze. They're not in their executive function to think about what their solutions are. So sometimes it's as simple as sitting with them, helping them calm down and saying things like, what have you thought about doing that you haven't done yet? And can we do that for you? <laughs> you know, is there a phone call that you haven't made that you think would help, but you're embarrassed to make, right? And so- I just yeah. wanna add, but yeah. Rebecca, I apologize again. When I talk to people about these things, it's no different than what we require. Like an emergency happens for us in our lives. We, we are not set apart. We're not any different. And we usually have a friend or a family member who brings us to the kitchen table is like, okay, look, have you thought about this? Have you called this number? Here's a couple of people I know. Yeah. I'm going to make an introduction. I'm going to send an email. I'm going to make a phone call. It's that same, it's the, the same, same level, same level of case management. <laughs> no different. Somebody talks us down, right? Somebody yeah. talks us through it. So, and we have, and we have somebody in our lives who we can go to. And so by the time families get to us, they've often, they often think it may not be true. It may be true, 
that they've exhausted all of their opportunities with everybody. And so, you know, and if you're, if your mom kicked you out of the house and you, and knows you're sleeping in your car, that's a pretty big deal, right? So you don't really want to call mom back and say, can I come back? But we can, we're not shy. <laughs> <laughs> like, what was it that, what was it that triggered you, grandma, to ask her to go? What was that? What was that thing? And is that something we can help you fix? Because she needs you. And I know you need her and you want to be in the lives of those grandkids. But what what was that that she wasn't doing that you needed her to do? And what if we said, you're willing to take her back if she does this and then we'll push that. So sometimes it's just a third party coming in to say, your mom said you had to do this. And guess what? You have to do this, right? Yeah, I want to connect the dots of because you had mentioned diversion earlier uh, in this conversation and those strategies that you just talked about, that is diversion. It is really leveraging the resources that um, that family already has, the insight into their own life that they already have, their experiences, and you're using the magic of that housing problem solving conversation and um, really just creative thinking and problem solving to divert someone from the homeless response system. Um, so just want exactly. to connect, which is that. a much different, if you think about how we used to operate, we're full, try somewhere else. After I told you my story and uh, maybe, maybe you didn't even, we didn't even get to the story, <laughs> you know, no, I'm sorry. We're full. I mean that, and that is how a lot of agencies continue to operate, which is, you know, line up, come in. We're full. Sorry. We can't take anybody beyond here. Right. It's a completely different shift and it took us years to make that shift it is not an easy shift it's a very different model and it takes a lot of work and patience and um failing and you know learning and trying again and it's not easy and if we think of trauma as like these chains and uh anchors that weigh people's feet down like that is another bit of weight on our anchors yeah. that are holding us down yeah yeah that's amazing um okay so we've talked about your shelter your amazing shelter services we've talked a little bit about diversion and prevention and the services provided through that those programs let's talk a little bit about your permanent housing programs mm -hmm. um and the wraparound support uh participants of those programs receive sure so in any given year we have between 170 and 200 units of supportive housing and those are in a mix Right. So some of those are either emergency housing vouchers that came through during the pandemic or their project based vouchers that are a three way partnership between the housing authority, us and a landlord where the voucher is attached to a unit. And then it's our responsibility to fill those units and to provide the supportive services. We have um, what's called rapid rehousing, which is a shorter term, you know, a year or two, a little bit over a year where we will go in first and pay everything up front and that family then has to sort of get on their feet and get work and start earning income and then as they start earning we start decreasing our contribution so that by the end of a year we're not at 100 anymore 100% anymore and they're not at zero it's the exact opposite right then they can sustain themselves and then we have um permanent housing which would be for families who have some sort of significant disability in the family and who um 
you know, sometimes have been homeless longer than others. So all of those housing programs are, are um, you know, sort of designed for the various needs a family has. Not everybody, again, we don't want to overly intervene. You don't want to give permanent housing to somebody who can get on their feet in a year because somebody needs that permanent spot, right? So um, depending on how the program is structured, so if we have, let's say, 15 or 20 families in one big apartment, apartment complex under a project-based voucher program, then we actually embed a case manager in that leasing office. And so that builds the relationship between our case manager and the leasing office. It gives the family an on-site resource. It allows us to be in their unit more often <laughs> to make sure everything's going well. They're not violating their lease. They're, we're looking for repairs that need to be made. Sometimes families are afraid to say, I've got a leak because I think I'll get blamed for that, right? And so they wait until it's black mold and then we got a problem, right? So we want to be in the unit with them. Um, and then other programs are, families are scattered and so our um, services are mobile. So our case managers set appointments and go into those units. And every family's situation is different and every family's bundle of services is different. So it's, an, it's a unique case plan that's built with each family. Sometimes we've had them in shelters, so we already know them. And so we can really share that knowledge with the case managers who are in housing. Sometimes they come from other shelters and, and we house them. So we don't get as much rich detail, but you know, some families need ongoing to support, to increase their income, to finish their education. They need, need help with getting their children enrolled in school and um, after-school programming. It, every family is different. They have different medical needs, mental health needs. Um, and so we try to, as much as we can, not make them dependent on our case manager, right? We're the guide, we're the navigator. We have rich resources in our community. The answer isn't family gateway for every everything that you have, but let me show you, this can help you here, this can help you here. So they're helping them find what they need for their sort of unique set of needs that isn't going to make them forever in our program, right? We want them to be self-sufficient and find their way forward. And we want to empower them to do that, not make them dependent. Um, thank you for sharing so much, Ellen. I, I am curious, and because sometimes I think we get this question, our homeless response system does so much, but we don't have thousands of people working at our organization, right? No, we do not. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think it's helpful to tell people how big is the team that you have that's doing all of this amazing work? Yeah, we have 50 full-time mm -hmm. and about 16 part-time. And we have 24-7 response for, and sometimes it's supplemented with, uh, during the very deep nights with an answering service who knows exactly how to direct those families. We're still staffed up 24 seven in our emergency shelters. Um, we have a whole crew of folks who are answering those phones, doing those assessments, trying to figure out how to divert people, putting them in hotels, supporting them while they're in the hotel, um, helping them get their benefits in line, helping them find vital documents, right? There's a whole array of needs. Um, and then in our housing programs, then of course we have case managers who are out in the field working one-on-one. -on -one. Such a mighty, mighty team, uh, amazing work happening. Uh, and thank you, Ellen, for sharing all of that and the, the 
the tremendous team that you have that I get to engage with all the time at Family Gateway. I just applaud all of the work that you all are doing in our community. Thank you for coming on today to speak about family homelessness. And I mean, even though I've heard many of these things before, it just, it feels like it just affirms the tremendous, awesome, amazing, I don't know how many other words I can use to describe it, work that Family Gateway is doing and that you're doing and your leadership in our space. We really do appreciate that and the commitment that you have and your team and, and the entirety of Family Gateway has to help us focus on making the experience of homelessness rare, brief, and non-recurring for families that um, unfortunately find themselves falling into homelessness. Before we leave, I, I always kind of want to ask this question sometimes for folks. Is there anything we haven't covered today? Like if you, if there's something out there that you think people should know about that we haven't asked you about, that we haven't covered about the work happening at Family Gateway and or family homelessness altogether, what kind of would be those that one, maybe two or three things that you would want them to know, Ellen? Yeah. You know, you touched on it a little bit earlier, which is we're not really different from these people. <laughs> right? This is not the other. The These are truly our brothers and sisters, and um, we are not separated by very much, right? So I always tell the story that I left my house when I was 17. I got married when I, I couch surfed when I was 17. I got married at 18. I had two babies and zero college. Divorced, single mother, two kids, no education. I graduated from high school. That was it. And so, but I had people in my life, even though my support structure was gone, I had people in my life who had told me, you're smart, you're a good writer, you, you are clever, you're creative, right? I had people who affirmed things about me that maybe I didn't believe them at the time, but I kept with me. And um, I was very much on the edge of desperation in those times, very young mother, no college. And so I went to school one class or two classes a semester, took me 10 years to get my undergrad. Then I went straight through to MBA, but it was because I believed I could do it. And I had people along the way who told me I could do it. So my story is only different because of that, because I got lucky. Man, that is that is a wonderful way to help people um, understand. Our stories are so similar to everyone else. Rebecca, anything you would add? I was just gonna ask one very short question, which is for our listeners who are maybe wanting to support Family Gateway in some way, is there, um, is there any information you could give them? Sure, sure, sure. So familygateway.org is our website and there's a place on there to, um, get involved, whatever that means for, and everybody is different. So we may be one of the few agencies where an entire family can volunteer together, right? We want families to see other families. And so um, adults can bring their kids and do volunteer projects with our kids. Um, so we want, we want our kids to be read to, we want our kids to learn computer skills. We want them to see people playing guitars. We need all, we need lots of enrichment because these kids have been very under-resourced in their lives. And so we want to um, bring other people into their lives who bring different experiences so that they can see beyond their limited view of themselves. Because if that's all you see, that's all you know, and you don't believe anything else. Mm -hmm. So we always try to engage um, volunteers to come in to the agency and work with our families. 
Well, thank you again. It really takes all of us to end homelessness. We are all neighbors, no matter your address, and we invite you, anyone, to look for ways to volunteer, advocate, and give toward this work in your community today. You just heard from Ellen Magnus of Family Gateway about how you can support the work and get involved there. And there's even opportunities for whole family. So be sure to check out their website. Thanks, Ellen, for joining us. Thank you, everyone out there in the world that's listening to this podcast. We appreciate it. And to my co-podcast host, (laughs) Rebecca Hickam. (laughs) Thank you, as always. Thank you, Julie. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Enjoyed spending time with you. Thank you.